0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, historian Jordan Taylor on misinformation in revolutionary America.
1: There's no expectation necessarily that newspapers contain truth. Newspaper printers from the era very directly say that my job is not to provide you with anything resembling truth. My job is to share information and for you to decide what's true rumor, face-to-face conversation, that was always going to be much faster. If they tried to report local news, there was a good chance that they were going to be a week late. So they really didn't have a chance. Rumor always spreads much more quickly than you can typeset. We are not living in a post-truth
0: era. When was the truth era, right?
1: Exactly. Whenever you say post-truth, you're sort of making an implicit historical argument that not enough people, I think, really think
0: carefully about. Jordan Taylor, welcome to Chatter.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to talk to you today because you have done something remarkable. You have taken something that's in the headlines that people are talking about, whether it's in terms of uh, corporations or politics, and you have found a a way to put a new angle on it by diving really deep into history. Uh, The whole issue of fake news and information processing and mediation uh, we're suffering under a whole bunch of that right now. And you as a historian have looked back to see whether what we're seeing is is all new, or whether it's just the latest example of a longer disordered relationship between information and politics. So what came first, the chicken or the egg here? were you Were you interested in Revolutionary War era media and that made you more aware of what was happening in the information ecosystem now? Or were you so disturbed by what we're seeing now in terms of fake news and misinformation that you were looking for some purchase on that by going backward?
1: Yeah, I started researching the American response to the French Revolution, which is one of the chapters in the book. Um, And it was almost overwhelming to me how often people were complaining about how their political adversaries were, um, misinformed about what was happening and how mm-hmm. they were the ones that had, uh, a better understanding of what was going on in revolutionary France, even though it was thousands of miles away and really they had no idea. Um, and so there's a lot of discussion in, uh, contemporary newspapers about, um, you know, corrupted channels and things like that. Uh, yeah. A belief, for instance, that British newspapers are un- untrustworthy sources for understanding what's going on in France. And after a while, uh, seeing that alongside what was happening in my Facebook feed, uh, luckily I'm off Facebook now, but uh, uh, it takes a while to kick a bad habit. Um, and just seeing my relatives, uh arguing about, mm-hmm. about um, whether, you know, their news sources could be trusted, when I would try to jump into a conversation and tell them, well, that's, that's not actually true. Uh, the defense mechanisms that would arise, all yeah. of these things had a lot of resonance for me, um, as I was noticing them in, in the archive in, in these newspapers. And so um, in a lot of ways, I, I sort of think of um, this book as um as a response to those kinds of conversations and to Mm -hmm. the ways that um you know you know frankly i've lost some family members uh to uh conspiratorial thinking Mm -hmm. to uh you know what we what we choose to call fake news and to these waves of misinformation that have washed over the american public and um in a lot of ways, this book is an attempt to try to understand
0: uh, how that happened uh, and why it happened. Plus, it gives you a chance to talk to your aunts and uncles and distant cousins about Benjamin Franklin Bache and about, you know, publications in Canada and the United States in the 1790s. And what family doesn't love that at Thanksgiving?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll assign it to them at Thanksgiving.
0: And uh, hopefully by Christmas, they will they will be able to uh, give me a good book report on it. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that will keep them from uh, delving down into the cesspools of the internet and getting the misinformation. No, it'll be, actually do a public service by getting them to focus on something more illuminating. Well, I I do want to talk a lot about. The, the intersections between, you know, what's happening now and what what you saw happening then. But I think we do need that foundation of what was happening then. So give us some context. Um, I learned a lot from your new book, Misinformation Nation, about the media ecosystem in the Americas in the very late 17th um, and then the 18th and early 19th centuries. But what what were newspapers like by the mid-18th century, and how did they get that way?
1: Yeah, so newspapers were not very much like what we think of as newspapers today, or even what we thought of as newspapers in the 20th century when we still uh, read physical newspapers. Um, in a lot of ways, they, to me, resemble much more um, the social media sharing apparatuses that we have um, today, in the sense that they were cobbled together mostly um from reprints of distant newspapers that is um if you were to look at an 18th century newspaper for the most part it was um a copy and paste job uh you could very easily read a newspaper published in boston or philadelphia or new york and not learn anything about boston or philadelphia or new york because for the most part it was assembled by the printer from uh copies of newspapers that had arrived in colonies or in the United States, uh, from London, especially, but also from from France, from the Netherlands. And so these newspapers are absolutely chock full of foreign news. That was what people were obsessed by. This is a time when um, the American colonies or the United States are very much on the periphery of world events. And and people knew that. They didn't think of themselves as being at the center of the world like Americans do today. Um, And so that's the most important piece of context, I think, for understanding these newspapers. But the second piece is really that um, there's no effort to verify this Mm -hmm. news. There's no such thing as a journalist. Mm -hmm. Um, The editors who are assembling these newspapers are more or less... um, Choosing things that they think are newsworthy, mm-hmm. and without really saying so, they're choosing things that they think express something true about the world. Um, and so, in a lot of senses, the uh, the selection process for newspapers is just reflecting their own views of mm-hmm. of what matters in the world and uh, what is fundamentally true about the world. Um, so, you know, I say that it's hard to blame them, though, right? Um, because if you took, you know, someone who was deeply invested in the truth, who believed in the same standards of evidence and verification that journalists, good journalists do today, and transplanted that person in the 18th century, they would have struggled, right? Because mm-hmm. communicating across, across this ocean, uh, the Atlantic Ocean, in the 18th century was very difficult. and You sort of had to just take what you could get. And uh, sometimes that meant that what you got was um, contradictory. Yeah. And sometimes that meant the only thing that you got was nonsense. Mm-hmm. had nothing to do with what was really going on in the world. Um, and so these you know these these factors, the fact that um, American news is obsessed with what's going on, especially in Europe and the Caribbean. And the fact that it's almost impossible to verify news from such distances meant that it was was very difficult for people in uh, the colonies or the United States, as if as they become to to grasp something resembling truth.
0: I immediately, you know, reflecting on that, I immediately think of some similarities and differences to today. So, in terms of newspapers picking up things from other sources. Um, and I don't mean sources like independent journalism, but I mean other publications and just printing them. Well, we have writers. We have the Associated Press. We, we have papers who are getting content from others and printing it in some cases without changes um, and just putting it in there. And I seem to recall I'm fuzzy now. Was it the International Herald Tribune that when I travel overseas and it would basically be cut ups from The New York Times and in other papers? Um, so that happens. But I think the core difference you've highlighted is, yeah, there there may be some of that copying and pasting going on now, but it's all journalism based as opposed to just whatever report happened to come in with no mediation other than it, it confirms what I already believe to be true.
1: Right. Yeah. And there's no expectation necessarily that newspapers contain truth. Uh, a lot of the newspaper printers from the era uh, very directly say that my job is not to provide you with anything resembling truth. Hmm. My job is to uh, report or share information and for you to decide what's true, which meant that the people who are reading uh, had even less of a chance of getting at the truth um, than the people who
0: were sorting through hmm. information and, and sort of mediating it. So that modern motto... We report. You decide. I mean, that really has some roots back in the in the 18th century.
1: Yeah, if you like, um, it was called the open press, mm-hmm. and in large part, it developed because uh, newspaper printers didn't want to be um, prosecuted, didn't want to be uh, viewed as making intentional choices yeah. about um, what was true, because in some senses, that made them vulnerable to. Mm-hmm uh, to legal authorities who, who might dislike,
0: um, Mm. that kind of selection process. True. The other angle of that, that's really interesting is the, the local news and how it's almost inverted from, from what we know now. So a small local newspaper, uh, and I don't care if you take, you know, Bloomington, Indiana or Bloomington, Illinois, or anywhere named Bloomington, (laughs) a, a local newspaper is going to be very heavy on, the local high school sports and on the town council and on, you know, what the, the cub scouts and, you know, are doing in the, the, the area, it's going to be very locally focused with stories brought in from AP or elsewhere for, for international coverage. Whereas you describe local news, uh, especially the emerging newspapers in the 18th century, being overwhelmingly about things far away. Um, But there was a reason for that. Why was it that the local papers didn't talk about local news as much? Well, because uh,
1: rumor, speech, face-to-face conversation, uh, whether in the streets, in a tavern, between neighbors, that was always going to be much faster than newspaper printers who uh, were, for the most part, publishing at weekly intervals. Um, And so if they tried to report local news, um, there was a good chance that they were going to be a week late, uh, for the most important things that were yeah. happening. And so they really didn't have a chance. Uh, rumor always spreads much more quickly than you can typeset, uh, something and, and write it down. Uh, and so that was just the more efficient medium. Yeah. And it took a long time, really, until, uh, the early 19th century before that was even practical to consider. Um, consider printing local news
0: but that means that people in and I'll just pick a few places randomly but let's say you know Boston uh, Philadelphia Savannah Georgia um, these places that were you know at least globally uh, close together relatively um, that they knew much more about what was happening in London and Paris and in some cases principalities in in Germany and other places, than they did about the colony next door because these local stories weren't getting conveyed in the newspapers the same way we would expect they would today.
1: Yeah and there are there are exceptions of course the American Revolution, for instance, people uh, during the during the war especially people become very interested in what's happening next door um, and you know sometimes there are letters that uh, someone will, send to a friend, you know, from Boston to to Philadelphia, that's filling them in Mm -hmm. uh, on -hmm. what's going on elsewhere. And sometimes that kind of thing will be, will be shared in a local newspaper. Um, So I don't want to claim that these newspapers are totally bereft of local news, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, If you look at um, one of these newspapers, you'll see uh, often, you know, two thirds, three quarters of the news content has to do
0: with uh, things that are quite remote from a reader's individual experience. Wow. And that that's such a shift now. You pick up a local paper, you, you can't find news about Africa or Europe or Asia in many local papers. And to hear that that was the majority is shocking. You know, most of the people listening to this, sadly, are not historians. And <laughs> I'm hearing you talk about what the local papers were doing. I believe what there was you know, one American published paper around 1705, 1710. But by the end of the 18th century, there were uh, over 250 different papers. So clearly a, an explosion in newspapers, especially late in the 1700s. But I, I don't see a lot of those newspapers lying around. Um, how does a historian research what was happening inside these various papers that haven't been around for, in some cases, 300 years? Well, first
1: of all, the remarkable thing about these newspapers is um, they are incredibly durable, and so the ones that didn't get tossed away uh, after their uh, their owner the subscriber read them uh, are pr- in pretty good shape. Actually, they're made of rags rather than
0: uh, the sort of uh, oh, interesting, pulp-y paper. They that, printed on um, literally, they printed on heavier, more durable material then than now. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um,
1: and so you know you can you can buy these uh, newspapers on eBay if you want a little memento. I have a few that I've used for teaching purposes, but they're they're, they're around. And uh, luckily, for my purposes, um, folks have digitized these newspapers and made them text searchable in ways that um, help to sort of unite this this otherwise totally fragmented, Uh, group of newspapers. And so Mm -hmm. that allows you to sort of get your arms around uh, the entire collection and see patterns between them that you otherwise wouldn't have seen. And so my book is largely based on (laughs) this very dull, uh, months-long process of going through um, thousands and thousands of newspaper issues from the 18th century and uh, trying to piece together where uh, they were getting their news from. Uh, right. And it was a very slow process. It would have been a
0: lot slower without
1: this digitization process um, right. that right. that a lot of archivists and um, other folks have gone through over the years.
0: So you end up spending a lot of time in databases, I imagine, searching for, you know, from, right? Just try to figure out where these reprintings are, are literally coming from to show up in the particular paper that you're searching.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Lot of Excel files, uh, keeping track of, of different citations, and yeah. the the basic unit of, of my research is uh, is the citation. We uh, we tend to think of newspapers as having headlines. Eighteenth uh, century newspapers weren't organized that way. They didn't have headlines uh, that were sort of supposed to grab your attention and tell you what was important. They had instead what I sort of think of as citational headings um, mm. and. So they're just uh, saying, you know, this is from the London Gazette of, of right. January 8th or whatever, right? Just mm-hmm. to sort of pick a random kind of example. Mm-hmm. And um, when you look at that on its own, it doesn't really tell you much, but when you look at these in terms of the tens of thousands of, of these citations, you can sort of, sort of start to see uh, patterns that emerge and uh, changes that develop over the course of the 18th century. Um, and that's really, uh, that's really, Sort
0: of the empirical basis for a lot of a lot of my book. Yeah. Well, let's get into the substance here. You you argue that the revolutionary generation was well intentioned uh, for the most part, but misguided in how it interpreted the cross Atlantic information sources, and thus had a distorted worldview. Um, there's a lot to break down there. Start with the Atlantic information system? How, how did information come and how during the revolution did that start to affect how what we would think of as truth or news uh, could be imagined?
1: Yeah. So the way that people gathered information was um, that a ship captain uh, would usually gather letters and newspapers from the port that they were leaving. And then they would bring it, bring those things with them to, you know, in this case, uh, North America. And then the port that they were disembarking at, uh, newspaper editors, um, other folks would sort of gather around and and take these, um, this this sort of precious cargo um, and distribute them. Um, and so, essentially, it's it's down to chance. What uh, what news arrives at what time, um, and in a lot of ways, this this is not the most efficient possible way of, of gathering information. You know, you might get a newspaper that uh, is explaining in more detail a particular event rather than explaining something from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot of confusion. <laughs> there's a lot of um, uh, uh working things out. From uh, sort of working things out backward uh, rather than just sort of um, being able to follow events as, as they unfold. And um, that also creates opportunities for folks to
0: uh, sort of fill in the gaps yeah. on their own. They almost have to, right? In an, in an information environment that, yeah, that chance-based, I mean, even putting aside... The fact that the ship's captain reporting this rumor he heard at the last port, putting aside the fact that he might be biased, that he might be putting spin on it, even if you assume that everybody is representing accurately what has happened, there's so little of it and the timing might be delayed. You might have something showing up um, one day and then you get something three days later on a different ship, but it took longer to get there. So it's actually... Going back before the news you already heard, that's really hard to sort out, even if there aren't people deliberately uh, misrepresenting the facts. Absolutely. It's a bad system. I don't think we should go back.
1: Um, But, you know, as you're sort of implying, there are people, right, who are uh, misrepresenting the facts uh, intentionally or otherwise. Uh, To me, it almost doesn't matter uh, whether people are intentionally lying. Uh, because the result is the same, right? And uh, the American colonists, you know, in the 1760s, 1770s, on the eve of the American Revolution, uh, some of them are choosing to read newspapers printed in London that uh, that tell one side of the story, and some of them are, are more engaged with newspapers that tell a different side of the story. Um, and so there's this affinity that develops uh, within different political groups for different kinds of news sources, mm-hmm. um, which has sort of predictable results, right? Um, what we would today think of as sort of information silos or, or
0: filter bubbles or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, right. And people of the time were not unaware of this. Uh, there were people, I think John Adams has the, the famous quote about, please don't think of this as an age of Reason and wisdom he he used what was the phrase age of frivolity uh, because yes. he realized just how bad this situation was. So we, we we can't say that people had a false sense of confidence in the news that they had and that, that they knew the reality. A lot of them were aware that this was constructed and probably had some falsehood built into it. but yet they still had to act, right in the in the revolution, you, you still had to make decisions. And you do that based on the information you have, not the information you want.
1: And it's also the case that, uh, as 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 in today, uh, people mostly view um, their political adversaries as being misinformed, rather than seeing themselves as uh, even that sounds about right. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. So, um, in a lot of cases. Americans view uh, view their enemies as willful deceivers uh, rather than as as being misinformed and and view themselves of course as having exclusive access to the truth so yeah. really the only time you see that sort of self-awareness of the weakness of, uh, of these sort of uh, communications or media systems is when people are looking at their enemies rather than uh, engaging in any kind of self-reflection
0: yeah. Well, I like how, you know, you, you through this project are pointing out that the American revolution, yes, there there are issues of representation and taxation that's there, but it really is an information war in so many ways. And like you said, assuming that the opponent is misinformed is a, is a huge part of it because you had people in the British colonies you know, talking about fake news all the time. There were prosecutions for spreading fake news. They were obviously concerned about this to the point that when the revolution came, you had many prominent people, perhaps the vast majority of patriots who thought that, well, what's happening is is not the king. What's happening is the ministers and they're misrepresenting the king's policy. And the majority of people in Great Britain support our cause and the only reason that they're not acting out for us more is because of misinformation, but it went both ways because you had King George the third in his proclamation announcing the rebellion, focusing on the fact that the colonists were being misled by dangerous and ill designing men, basically thinking that the colonists had been seduced by misinformation. So it really plays out both ways, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is how we do politics
0: uh, in a lot of ways, you know, it's
1: uh, it's a funny thing because I think we think that these dynamics of accusing the other side of um, of being misinformed or of, of being a bunch of deceitful you know um, jackals or whatever uh, we think that that's a fundamentally modern contemporary thing but this has always been really how Americans have performed popular politics and um, and you know we could throw, British people in there too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least, at least in this time period. Um, so it's absolutely at the center, in my view, of the American Revolution and the politics of the American Revolution. Um, this this exchange between Loyalists and Patriots, between colonists and um, and British leaders, who are mutually distrustful and sort of unable to accept the possibility that the other side might be acting in good faith uh, and not acting to willfully deceive um, powerful yeah. folks. The, um, the Patriots have this really resonant discourse in the 1760s and early 1770s about misrepresentation. Mm-hmm. This is really at the core of their concerns um, about representation itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, they felt that because they weren't able to get their message effectively, their view of the world uh, across the Atlantic, in a way that was consistent and in a way that was heard by uh, by the king and by um, sort of the the prime minister and the folks who led uh, the British government and Parliament, that mm-hmm. um, it was impossible for them to be adequately and effectively represented right. in uh, in Parliament and. Know, in the British government more generally. And that was in, in large part the basis for their conclusion that independence was was necessary. Yeah. Um, if you can't be represented uh, whether you know politically or in terms of um, your voice, right, your view of the world, mm-hmm.
0: then uh, you can't effectively be a part of the British Empire. There's a great story. Uh, I got ahead of myself by jumping to the revolution, but there was a great pre-revolutionary story that I think illustrates some of these dynamics in it. And it sounds so silly and yet the way that it played out brings these things to life. Uh, Talk about the wooden barrel in Boston (laughs) in 1768 and how that information was, was mediated and interpreted and and led to some real action.
1: Yeah. So there is this barrel, a wooden barrel that sort of mysteriously appears near Boston Harbor. And uh, some of the loyalist leaders at the time, including the uh, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, believe that uh, this barrel is, is a tar barrel that uh, once the British troops were are imminently going to arrive uh, because uh, Boston has started to get this reputation as an unruly place and in need of of British troops to restore order. Uh, Hutchinson and others believe this barrel is going to be lit uh, as a signal to other Patriot colonists to assemble and to prevent British troops from landing in Boston Harbor. This isn't true. This doesn't happen. Uh, After this rumor kind of floats around town for a little while, it goes away. Um, and a few years later, the uh, through sort of some complicated machinations by, uh, by Benjamin Franklin, a collection of letters written by Hutchinson and some other British officials sort of surface. Um, this is, I think, four years after the fact, and one of the things that comes out is Hutchinson is telling his uh, superiors, in britain that these colonists they're they're looking to uh set this barrel aflame and they're going to attack the uh british troops when they come out of their ships and try to land in boston harbor and the colonists see this and they say well you know this is obviously untrue this didn't happen this is a great example of the ways that that hutchinson and other british colonial officials are um just misleading parliamentary authorities and um Trying to portray us as something that we're not, as violent, as unruly, as disordered, uh, when really, you know, they would have said, uh, we're, we're, we're just trying to protest peacefully and uh, make our voices heard. Uh, and so this barrel becomes a flashpoint because after the fact, you know, four years after this barrel isn't lit on fire in Boston Harbor, there are all of these depositions and mm-hmm. testimony by, you know, the workmen who took the barrel down and people who witnessed the, the barrel being taken down. And there's arguments, is it is it an empty nail, nail barrel? Is it a turpentine barrel? Is it a barrel full of tar? And all these things have different implications for um, for thinking about whether it would have served as an effective sort of beacon for colonists to to gather around it and to challenge British troops. So it's it's, it's this very granular uh, argument that's in some ways, you know, kind of silly, um, because ultimately this this single barrel doesn't really matter, but it kind of goes to show how deeply invested the colonists were mm-hmm. in setting, as they saw it, uh, I should say the Patriot colonists were in, uh, as they saw it, setting the record straight yeah. and trying to influence um, how British officials understand. Um, the nature of their protests
0: it speaks to a larger issue as well about history itself which is which stories from long ago but i would say even recently but but which stories actually happened the way that we know them because what you're describing they they had extensive research a few years later to do the depositions right to talk to the people who touched this barrel to find out what happened with this one barrel And yet there are so many other hundreds, thousands of instances that have been passed down through history, and not all of them received such careful scrutiny, right? So some of them, I think, have been debunked. Some of the things that at least I learned growing up about George Washington and the cherry tree, right? But Mm -hmm. how many other things having to do with details of the Boston Tea Party, of Lexington and Concord, of... Uh, Valley Forge, how many of those are really known as well as we think we know them given the information ecosystem of the time?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, I, I have no good answer for you uh, except to say that I think when we recognize the ways that uh, patriot leaders and loyalist leaders were so careful to shape the ways that um, people were. Uh, understanding events in the colonies, we have to be very, very careful about accepting their version of events at face value. And a lot of histories and a lot of historians uh, in the 19th century and uh, through really the mid 20th century did a lot of accepting those stories at face value. They were very happy to take Patriots accounts of events Mm. um, for granted, right? Because in a lot of ways they fit nicely within the narratives that they were trying to tell. but when you recognize that uh, a lot of these accounts are taking place in the middle of what you aptly called an information war, uh, which would have been a great title for my book if Alex Jones hadn't taken it, um, <laughs> There's if, that. once you realize that this is this is taking place in this kind of context, uh, it becomes much more difficult, I think, to to really separate out uh, fact from fiction, mm-hmm. uh, and you know. I couldn't do it in a lot of cases. You know, fact-checking is hard enough in the 18th century. Fact-checking something that happened in the 18th century from the vantage point of the 21st century.
0: Okay. In a lot of cases is, is almost impossible. Right. And it leads to a, a case like you've described that the, you know, we'll call them the, the Patriots. Some of them well-intentioned were, were putting out what they thought was the truth, but of course there's a bias there. Um, And then of course, some of them probably were spinning things consciously for the benefits that could derive from doing so. But on the flip side, they were internalizing several misperceptions, um, like among them that the belief that the British government was going to fall due to this, or that most people in Great Britain agreed with the Patriot cause, or that the boycott was going to have massive consequences inside the the British empire. Um, All of those are are due to this mix of bad information, misinformation, and just the lack of credible mediators of information. Right? Because at this point, you're also getting the issue that a lot of the communications that you talked about earlier from the er earlier 1700s during the war, they they weren't getting the same kinds of information from a bunch of sources because some of those ships just weren't getting past the British Navy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's hard to look past, mm-hmm. I think, the fact that many of the essential premises of political action that the Patriots had um, were, uh, I mean. I don't want to call them entirely nonsense, but certainly not, not, they don't accord with our understanding of history, let's put it that way. Um, it doesn't reflect how we understand events in, especially in Britain, um, in, in the American revolutionary era. Um, so you mentioned several of those. Another was this really deep-seated conspiracy theory, uh, ultimately, that Britain's ministry was was aiming to uh, deprive the colonists of their liberties as Englishmen, um, and this is this is all very deeply felt. It's, um, it's something that patriots, as you say, internalize and, and hear so often that it becomes um, almost sort of a, a shibboleth of, of revolutionary politics. Um, and you know, as I say, it is it is sort of nonsense, but it's it's necessary nonsense for revolutionary action. Um, you can't really have a revolution until politics become overheated mm-hmm. and exaggerated uh, false accounts of of British politics um, and reality are, are what ends up overheating American politics uh, as much or more, in my view, than the and the grievances that we are so familiar with about, you know, taxation and, and things like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, as we say that these, uh, patriots are developing these false perceptions of British politics, uh, in large part by reading, uh, London opposition newspapers, mm-hmm. by reading letters from their friends in London, basically, uh, it would sort of be like if you're, you're only, um, Understanding your only knowledge of of Joe Biden was coming from reading uh, Breitbart or watching Newsmax, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, something like that. You know, of course, you're going to, to join a militia and try to launch a revolution if that's that's your uh, only view of of your um, adversaries. Uh, this this
0: highly um, exaggerated view of the world. It seems to me that the. The, the shock here that there was so much you know, misinformation, so many false beliefs, That that's probably not what should be surprising to us given what you've described. The shock should be the fact that there were somehow rational people who were able to actually find nuggets of fact and make decisions based on reality instead of on all of these misperceptions. The, the very fact that some people were able to make good decisions inside this information ecosystem is actually quite shocking given everything you've mentioned that made it hard for them, whether it's just confirmation bias um, or whether it's confirmation bias exacerbated by all these factors. Perhaps the real miracle is that we did have some people making some decent decisions at the time uh, with all of that going against them. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that's that's fair enough. Um, I, I think that a lot of the folks who were making, uh, good decisions were doing so in, uh, in a context of, uh, for instance, in the Continental Congress, uh, some military leaders, right? And a lot of their decision making was premised not entirely on, um, Atlantic news, but rather on sort of the events around them, uh, the, the yeah. news that they were gathering about Mm -hmm. their neighbors, about, you know, battles that were happening, not thousands of miles away, but rather dozens of miles Mm -hmm. away. And Mm -hmm. so to some extent, they had better chance uh, with that kind of stuff.
0: Well, among the the facts that we do know from history is that the United States did achieve independence. So we we got that one settled. How did independence change the information ecosystem? And how did that first post-revolutionary generation how did it evolve in terms of learning about the world and filtering information from British and French and other sources? Yeah. So
1: independence uh, meant that Americans were no longer getting their information almost exclusively from Britain, right? That's that's the basic um, change there. Uh, because of the way that uh, trade existed in the 18th century, um, ships were mostly going within an empire, right? So you did have private, or not privateers, uh, smugglers, I should say, who moved between empires in ways that were not strictly legal, but for the most part, the traffic uh, incoming to American ports was, was coming from you know, British islands in the Caribbean or from uh, the British Isles themselves. Uh, And so independence changes that, right? Suddenly you have ships that can come and go from France, from uh, the Netherlands, from French and Dutch colonies elsewhere in in the New World, from uh, what's now Germany, right? Uh, Other parts of Europe. And so uh, that was unusual in the early modern world. Uh, If you compare, for instance, American newspapers from the 1790s with Canadian newspapers on the same era, you see a much greater um, heterogeneity
0: of, of news sources in the American papers. That is a fascinating natural case study you've got there because you've got British North America and then suddenly with the political change of American independence, you you have the ability to, to see with one major variable different, the, the differences in the news Coverage and the misinformation between British Canada still and the United States.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I looked at how things were being reported uh, in the 1790s in Canada, especially the French Revolution, which is the big event of the 1790s, uh, and compared that with how things were being reported in the 1790s in the United States, and it's you know it's night and day in a lot of ways. Um, if you're American, how you so? could find. Well, you could find any narrative you care to construct about the world, first of all. Uh, you could um, find news that indicated that the French Revolution was um, just an unending string of horrors, or you could find information that would suggest that the French Revolution was um, was a glorious event, uh, marred here and there with a few imperfect moments, maybe, but uh, ultimately, was was leading to the regeneration of humanity and that kind of stuff, right? Um, so you had radicals, republicans, uh, conservatives, federalists; these different political groups that, were, that are coalescing. They're building these internally uh, coherent worldviews in the United States based on uh, divergent streams of evidence, right? Um, that to people outside of those uh, outside of those circles. Or silos seemed uh, nonsensical. In Canada, on the other hand, you had a much more narrow band of um,
0: of, of information. And is that largely You're a function mostly... of the British officials playing that role of mediator, of not letting dissenting information get through?
1: There is that absolutely. So uh, in Canada, there's much more censorship than there is in, in the United States until the late 1790s. Um, but it's also the case that they're just importing. Uh, news from Britain that uh, that uh, by the middle of the 1790s, especially, is more or less uniformly francophobic uh, opposed to the French Revolution. But yeah, you're absolutely right. In Canada, there are government officials who are sort of um, playing the role of, uh, of, of censor who are making it very clear to Canadian printers that there are going to be consequences if they share information that they disagree with. Um, and because, for most of uh, the revolutionary period, this is this would be unusual in the United States. Um, there is a much more almost anarchic uh, system of of
0: information flows where anyone can really uh, share whatever information they want. I don't think anybody can watch the play Hamilton without realizing that there is some role of information and misinformation that leads to the federalist, uh, Republican split. And you've, you've done the hard work of actually analyzing the reality there and realizing how perhaps more than anything else, the interpretations of the French revolution, uh, if not led to certainly exacerbated this split and, and made it all but inevitable that you would have the the conflict um, leading up to it, including in, in 1800. Talk about that a little bit. How did the misinformation culture contribute to the what became the big partisan split in early U.S. politics? Yeah. So
1: the first piece of context we have to uh, put in place here is that the French Revolutionary Wars uh, create a circumstance in which Americans are suddenly receiving so much more news from France than they ever had before. So uh, the French Revolutionary Wars drive up a global demand for grain imports and Americans start shipping uh, a great deal of uh, foodstuffs really to uh, continental Europe and to France in particular. And bringing in those ships would would come back with news, newspapers, letters, travelers from France. Uh, and so you had um, this sort of efflorescence of Franco-American communications, just as the French Revolution is sort of heating up, so to speak. Um, And so, in the United States, uh, Americans um, sort of start to set off on different paths based on the kinds of information that they're consuming, and just based on um, their own sort of predilections in terms of what uh, what European sources they they viewed as most valuable or most trustworthy. So the Federalists start to develop um, a, a preference for British newspapers. Uh, unsurprisingly, the Federalists are long uh, viewed as sort of the anglo Anglophilic party, um, the party of Britain in the United States. and um, you know that's that's Alexander Hamilton, that's George Washington, John Adams. Uh, those folks, and then the Republicans, the party of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, um, those folks tend to prefer news that comes directly from France uh, to understand the French Revolution. Uh, And so if you look at newspapers that are associated with the Federalist Party, they're significantly less likely to reprint information from French presses, Mm -hmm. translate, I should say, and reprint information from French presses. They're also the Federalist newspapers are, are also much more likely to share information from ship captains who tended to be Federalist uh, politically and who might arrive from France with a slightly more suspicious view of those events. Um, whereas Republican news mediators are, are quite suspicious of, of um, the ship captains themselves. They frequently accuse them of, of sort of being biased, right? Um, and so there are almost these uh, defense mechanisms that develop whereby um, someone who is hopeful about the French Revolution finds ways to dismiss information that sets it in a bad light. And you know, the opposite is true as well. Federalists and people who are distrustful or suspicious of the French Revolution start to find ways to, to discard uh, information from France. They say that you know it's, it's censored by... French, or that, um, right. you know, uh, you just you just um, can't trust information that is coming out of France because of systems of prior restraint, things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're still talking about an elite phenomenon here, right? You're not talking about the you know U.S. population, especially outside the major cities, having. Much of a role in this, yes, they're getting some foreign dispatches that are printed in newspapers they have access to, but a lot of this information culture you're talking about, certainly, it's not the enslaved people, and in many cases, it's not the you know rural farmers and such. You, you're really talking about that um, the landed elite who's involved in this information war at the highest level.
1: Yeah. In a lot of ways, the rise of the newspaper, you know, you mentioned going from one newspaper in 1705 to more than 200 at the end of the century. This process is also a process whereby uh, non-elites are excluded from the process of, of, of defining and mediating information, right? Um, and so in my book, I, I refer to this as the mediation revolution in the 18th century. and what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you look at how information travels in the 17th century, for instance, uh, enslaved people, women, uh, non-elites have a, have pretty much the same kind of role as everyone else in that kind of an information ecosystem. But when information is channeled through newspapers, um, and, uh, it's sort of packaged together in, in newspapers and then dispersed to a population from them, you have, uh, first of all, the possibility that powerful elites, including colonial governors in in the colonial period, and then later, um, eventually, uh, national political leaders will have the ability to influence that directly through censorship or through other forms of sort of influence. Uh, and then you also just have the, the reality that uh, the folks who are going to be uh, doing that packaging and that process of mediation are going to be almost exclusively white men uh, who have, you know, in a lot of cases, a very limited view of, of reality. Um, and so we often think about the newspaper, I think, as this sort of democratic medium that allows right. people of all kinds access yeah. to, um, to news. And, you know, maybe that's more true in the 19th century. Um, maybe it's not. You could You could talk to someone else about that but um, in the 18th century, at least, uh, it's really not that way at all. In a lot of ways, uh, it functions to strengthen and ratify uh, elite perceptions of the world. And so people who are not able to subscribe to newspapers uh, are still able to access um, some of the information that comes from it. You don't necessarily have to be a subscriber to be a reader um, and you can sort of uh, you can sort of imbibe this information that other people are sharing as a result of of their uh, reading of the newspaper that's that's a complicated process I could spend all day talking about but um, for me I think of the newspaper in a lot of ways functioning as a sort of um, uh, agenda setting to use sort of a media studies term uh, uh, agenda setting setting mechanism that defines um what are the important topics of conversation mm-hmm. and sort of defining the limits of how they can be uh, understood. But it's not necessarily the case that everyone in the colonies is, is reading and engaging with,
0: with right. uh, newspapers um, and on that an all, individual basis. That all serves the purpose for me at least of kind of cleaning the lens through which we look at the Alien and Sedition Acts, because those are so often shorthanded to be like this this crazy thing that happened and quickly got turned around and the you know the public in some tellings but certainly the representatives of the mass public certainly took advantage of the backlash but when you've put it all in the way you've just phrased it it seems to me that the the sedition acts in particular I mean based on english common law and some colonial precedents it actually fit with the times much better than our 21st century hindsight would would have you believe. And it really was focused, uh, several prosecutions were focused on restraining fake news. It was this elite phenomenon, not necessarily this idea to keep information from getting to the public as much as another battlefield for this elite on elite issue, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to let the federalists off too easily, right. Uh, We often think of the Sedition Act, the Alien and Sedition Acts, as being sort of a power grab. And, you know, there was some of that, right? Uh, The Federalists were not unaware that uh, these pieces of legislation would be beneficial to them. But at the same time, I think that they did sincerely believe that it was necessary to restrain what they understood as sort of like a torrent of um, falsehood that was overwhelming. Uh, the American public and making them unable to render appropriate decisions and exercise sort of uh, their their democratic prerogatives in a in a, in a just and wise way uh, so for them the the sort of misinformation crisis that they detected resulting from um, you know all the things we've just talked about was a problem to be solved and the only way that they could Saw to do that was to apply these precedents that, like you say, very much existed in English common law. This was not like a new thing for them. This was uh, they they were bringing out um, laws that had been enforced relatively recently for them, you know, within their lifetimes uh, in the colonies. Um, So they're they're absolutely. absolutely aware that this is going to help them politically, but because they identify their cause, the Federalists, with the cause of the nation, they understand uh, Republicans, their political mm-hmm. opponents, to be uh, almost hopelessly uh, overcome by misperceptions, and so alleviating mm-hmm. uh, this crisis of misinformation would would help them. But that was just because <laughs> because they thought that their enemies were were so thoroughly deceived. Um, and were themselves uh, a bunch of deceivers. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I I sort of sympathize with the federalists there a little bit but but they're also mm-hmm. um they're also
0: not completely uh the heroes of that story. It it complicates the story perhaps it deepens the understanding of the story but it it doesn't absolve them, right, of intent in, in yeah. these cases. Uh doing a deep dive on this information ecosystem and misinformation in this era. You you can't really do that without getting to some big conspiracy theories and conspiracism. And it wasn't that long ago here in the podcast, I chatted with John Dickey, who did a long study of Freemasonry and all of the conspiracies uh, around that. And in your case, you uncovered that some of this misinformation ended up focusing on the purported Illuminati and the role of the Illuminati and how that really took off at one period. Um, Talk a little bit about that. And especially about that as a representation of how this misinformation climate so easily goes from just instances of fake news to big lies and massive conspiracies about puppet masters pulling strings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good story. Um, So this, idea of the Illuminati comes to the United States in the spring of 1798, and I'm mentioning this particular moment because the context is really important. This is also a moment when Americans very abruptly turn against revolutionary France, and the reason for that is uh, what's known as the XYZ affair, essentially this diplomatic rupture uh, that leads Americans to believe that the French are, um, are being very disrespectful to American diplomats in Paris and are demanding a bribe in order to uh, solve a diplomatic crisis that had that had erupted between the two nations. Um, and so suddenly a lot of Americans who had been uh, finding ways to excuse the excesses or disorder of the French Revolution in part by looking at uh, French news sources and um, letters from France, things like that, people who had who had spent the last you know five, six, seven years uh, making excuses for revolutionary France found themselves on the defensive. They found themselves saying, "Well, actually, hold on, maybe this wasn't such a good thing, the French Revolution." And so they needed an explanation for for why um, and. Uh, just as this is developing, this book from a Scottish academic that's itself based on uh, a, French, um, a French religious figure, um, his book, it's called Proofs of a Conspiracy by John Robeson, the Scottish academic. Um, it, it arrives in the United States and a Boston minister named Jedediah Morse picks up a copy. He's, he thinks, oh, well, this explains a lot. Because uh, the theory that Robeson uh, is putting forth is that this group of um, Freemasons who formed in Bavaria in the 1770s had sort of gone into hiding, had uh, found ways to manipulate world events, and in particular they had actually hatched uh, sort of a scheme that that developed into the French Revolution. Now, mm. before we go much further, worth saying that this is uh, not true, right? <laughs> um, that this is complete, uh, completely fabricated. But it's also worth thinking about. You know, um, why did people believe that this was true? Because um, Jedediah Morse. He helped spread this. It becomes what's known as the New England Illuminati scare, especially in 1798, 1799. And quite a lot of Americans kind of just accept that, um, that there is this shadowy group called the Illuminati. Um, and this is connected to something we said earlier, right, which is that um, Americans are more or less unable to develop sort of nuanced visions of causality. If the French Revolution was not what it seems or what it seemed at the time, uh, then there must have been some sort of deception. And If there if there was some sort of deception, there must have been some sort of deceiver. And to deceive the world on a scale required to uh, to hide the true intentions behind the French Revolution, which is, you know, according to the Illuminati's conspiracy to, to spread these enlightenment principles in ways that were destructive to all order and religion and society, to, to undermine all of the institutions of, of good order in the world. Uh, if, if you're going to uh, to hide the true intentions of the French Revolution for as long as they did, you needed a pretty vast conspiracy of, of shadowy folks. And in that sense, um, something like the Illuminati conspiracy was the only way to sort of explain uh this this um development of of how the french revolution went from being understood as uh as the sequel Mm -hmm. the fitting sequel to the american revolution to being understood as an attempt to undermine um
0: all good order in the world it's almost a a mass effort to resolve this cognitive dissonance right of the revolution and the french revolution and why it didn't work out the way it should have, you find the big baddie behind it. And, and this book as flawed as it was mediated through, uh, through Jebediah Morse became an explanation that people could latch onto.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and you can, you can sort of sympathize with them, yeah. think, frankly. Um, yeah, because for one thing, uh, according to the standards of evidence, that people used to, uh, to verify things in mm. the 18th century world. This was a pretty well-sourced account, actually. This is a, a, a fairly uh, reputable gentleman, John Robeson, the Scottish academic. He's got uh, uh, a chair of, uh, I believe, natural philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, one of the great educational uh, institutions in the world at this time. Uh, he is basing this on apparently the first-hand account of a uh, a French priest. You know, by the standards of the time, this is about as good as it gets. And again, this is going back to this point that even people who are deeply committed to um, truth, people who are acting in good faith, who are trying to verify things, uh, it's very easy for them to be deceived
0: in the 18th century. Yeah. Well, let's... uh... Let's quickly link this to the concerns of the present day. And I think that the main development in between the 1780s, 1790s and today is that by roughly the early 20th century, you started having American news media see themselves as objective reporters. And suddenly you had a, a the quest to minimize uncertainty, to resolve discrepancies, to present something that was true and not just interesting um so that's a huge difference right um in terms of how the 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 media sees itself it doesn't eliminate most of these things we've talked about but it does change them such that the misrepresentations the misinformation the information ecosystem of the late 18th century and and that of today we, we still gain some understanding by comparing the two. And I, and I'd like you to put the bow on that. What What is it that helps us understand or perhaps make progress in our current misinformation woes by learning these lessons of the past?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, it's worth saying that uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and I haven't come to any easy conclusions about what... Um, so there's no one button you can push to fix it all? What a oh, shame. I wish there was, yeah. Especially, you know, in terms of possible policies, I can tell you that we probably shouldn't uh, renew the Sedition Act of 1798, but I also don't think... Okay, that's a start. Was, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone was proposing that. But, uh, I mean, I think you've hit on something that I think is really important here, um, which is that the big difference between us and folks in the 18th century is that we have these institutions of knowledge production, imperfect though they are, that um, that are defined by a search for truth, an open-ended search for truth, and that are disciplined by professional ethics that that create disincentives, consequences for fabrication. Those institutions didn't exist in the 18th century. Um, yeah, and yeah. you know we can we can add all the caveats we want about how uh, today's media, today's, uh, uh, you know, academia, all of these institutions have flaws. Um, but I think collectively, as you suggest, they, they push us toward uh, knowing things in a very slow, often frustratingly slow way. Um, and when you look at things uh, today from the perspective of the 18th century, when none of that infrastructure really existed and uh people were trying to decide what was happening in the world around them based on on the intuitions of a bunch of partisan hacks Uh, i think the the existence of people whose job it is to verify things and to uh search for truth that's practically miraculous Um, and so i think american society should do a much better job of appreciating that uh that includes by doing things like funding research, funding uh, education, and supporting real journalists—journalists journalists who who uh, who have a, a, a commitment to professional ethics—to ensure that they have uh, the resources they need to um, to identify truth and create accountability for for the powerful. Um, I think another thing that we need to realize, and again, this this doesn't sort of resolve itself very easily in any sort of policy prescription or any sort of suggestion for how we solve the misinformation crisis of our present, but I think uh, an important bit of context or or, um, perspective we need to bring to this is that we are not living in, as has often been said, a post-truth era. There's really never been a time when modern democratic politics when hasn't... was the
0: truth era, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. right? When, whenever you say post-truth, you're sort of making a, uh, an implicit historical argument that not enough people, I think, uh, really think carefully about. Um, so when we, we talk about the the death of truth, right, or, or living in a truth post-truth era, um, you know, the people who, who use those kinds of terms are usually thinking with fairly limited horizons. Um, I, I sometimes explain this to my students as um, the Walter Cronkite fallacy right uh, that if you start your story of American media and and truth by looking at you know what we might reasonably consider one of the uh, one of the high points of American journalism when broadcast media was relatively nonpartisan though you know it still excluded the viewpoints of, of non-white people um, and you look at the declension there uh, with, you know, the rise of cable news and the internet and social media, you know, you you do have kind of a post-truth narrative and a a declension narrative. Uh, But if you look at a larger version of this story, starting with the rise of newspapers in the 18th century, you start to see that any moments when when the American news media was anywhere near functional, that was really an aberration. That was uh, not... uh, That was... An aberration rather than the norm. So I think you can you can draw conclusions from that that are pe- pessimistic, mm-hmm. or you can draw optimistic conclusions from that. Yeah. Uh, the pessimistic view, I guess, is that you know we haven't solved this in more than three hundred years. Uh, so are we really going to be able to do it before right. before our uh, democracy is really uh, seriously threatened by it? Optimistic view is that somehow we've muddled through circumstances like this in the past. And um, it hasn't always gone very well. But if American democracy was founded during a misinformation crisis, uh,
0: maybe it can survive a renewed misinformation crisis today as well. Not only that, but we, we, we can use it as the motivation to do better is to realize that this has always happened, but we have greater tools at our disposal. We have a better understanding of human psychology. We have a better understanding of how the media ecosystem can inform and be informed by the political dynamics so that we, we have the motivation to do more. Instead of becoming cynical, we actually get out there and, and, and do something. Um, yeah. And, and also, that connects to my first point,
1: which is, yeah. you know, we have these wonderful people who, who are uh, trying to understand all of this, who who are engaging in this open-ended search for truth. And that's why we have a chance, I think.
0: And perhaps at a personal level, realizing, kind of taking lessons from all of this uh, research that you've done, that maybe each one of us can be a little bit more uncomfortable in our own uncertainty, and maybe be a little bit more forgiving of the slow plotting process of verification that is needed. So, at the personal level, we, we bask in that uncertainty and that uh, delayed gratification and we reward it in others. Maybe that's not a, a way out, but that certainly would be a, a step forward. Yeah, I think that's
1: beautifully put. Um, and I think, you know, if, if we can learn one lesson from this story, it's to not be like the folks in the revolutionary era who were. <laughs> often wrong, but seldom lacked confidence uh, that they were right. Um, I think that sometimes we think that the answer to misinformation is skepticism um, to uh, to try to ferret out biases and falsehoods, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but folks in the 18th century were extremely skeptical. They just trained that skepticism very selectively. Um, so I think we, um, we really need to recognize, as you say, the beauty in complexity and mm-hmm. uncertainty yeah. and resist the attraction to political leaders, to, to media figures and, and other folks whose appeal is, is based on, in a lot of ways,
0: an un- unfounded certainty about how the world works. Well, Jordan, let me reach into our chatterbox and find a pre-printed question to stump you here. All right. Who is someone in your field or a related one whose work more people should be following? Oh. it's your chance to shout out a a colleague or someone that you found interesting and insightful that we could all benefit from?
1: Yeah. Um, So one of the things I'm really interested in uh, for obvious reasons is the relationship between um history and uh information literacy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in other words thinking about how we can use history to um to sort of uh guide students and people who aren't students in navigating uh the, the informational ecosystem that we exist in um and the person who he's not a historian at all but the person who has been most helpful for um, my thinking in that regard is um, Mike Caulfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think he, he's just doing the smartest work out there right now in terms of thinking about how we can work with um, with students, how we can uh, guide ourselves, really, to avoid falling into some of the traps that uh, we have just discussed, right? Um I- and so, you know, a lot of a lot of my thinking really has, even historical thinking, has actually been guided by folks like him, by uh, media theorists, and, and people who are just trying to, to make sense of this tangled,
0: uh, tangled web of news that we're all trying to navigate together. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that, and Jordan, I appreciate you and your research and your willingness to spend a lot of time talking about it with me. Thanks for coming on Chatter.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.